whole kind of um, the in-breath and the out-breath, the kind of rhythm of retreat, the rhythm of practice, the rhythm you know, of, as I've been talking about, kind of settling into retreat, this kind of deep settling, and then it may not feel very deep because of the stuff that starts arising, but actually my experience is that it starts arising because of the container that's been formed, and we start to get insight into how we do ourselves and do the world, and it gets freed up a bit. And the retreat gets to this point where we start, our minds, or maybe they don't, start turning towards going home. And the, it's a very insightful time. Pay attention. What, you, what your response is to that, what happens here. Yeah. And what it's important to recognise is that we have been on a long fast. Yeah? We have been fasting from a lot of sense contact. And tomorrow, I think that she, every one of us, is going to hit the highway. Yeah? And there'll be a lot more coming in through the sense doors. So it's how to modulate that. You know, there are, are times of being really porous and right to that place where I was lying last night, probably like lots of you, just hearing the rain falling through my mind. Mm. Yeah. No. We're here. You know, I don't know if you felt how beautiful it was this morning with the two bells working together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the mind's got, so it's really just like that. It, it is being present to what's happening and it's really attuned. So how to get it so it can stay attuned with coarser objects, with things coming at you faster. So in my experience, it is about learning to modulate how much sense contact we're letting in and how we're responding to it. So it's always helpful to have a time where the silence lifts. It gives you a chance just to check things out a little bit. And because a number of folk are keeping the eight precepts, so won't be there this evening at soup time. The, my sense was to lift it at the meal time today. And then by the time the bell calls for the afternoon practice, we go back into silence. Yeah. Sound okay. And it, as now I've been saying, then you're left with the reverberations of it. Mm. But it's helpful. Yeah. In the end, as with the whole thing, it's your choice. You have to know what's good for you. Yeah. So that's one form. 
Um, the other couple of things about today is Laura would like to talk to the assembly. So that would be at 6.30. And there will also be a talk, and I'm not sure from who, at about 6.45 tomorrow, just around the final kind of clean-up. Yeah. And here we are in the full moon of August, and I hope each of you recognises, even though America is a bit behind Asia and the South, that you are in a stream of people where there, you know, today, multitudes will be practising, consciously observing the precepts and cultivating meditation. It's much bigger than this. And to really feel it, because it's really helpful when you go home to feel yourself in this huge body of practitioners. Now, if I close my mind, there, close my eyes, you know, can I hear the, the lay community, what, Nana chart, chanting the chanting? Kapojau! You know? Really slow and drawn out. <laughs> yeah. And that sense that I might be here, I might be in New Zealand, but everywhere folk are cultivating. Yeah. If, you know, if you're ever cruising through places like Thailand to get out to some of these monasteries where you see just how powerful a lay practice is. Because in Asia it can seem so focused on the monastic community, which has particular gifts to it, but to also see this essential strength you know, that's swelling up from this ground. Yeah. So the full moon. And in the spirit of it, since in many places people will be staying up all night, which doesn't seem the best idea since so many, well, which everyone has to hit the highway tomorrow, I thought, well, what's a reasonable time? You know, that a sense that we practice together till 10 o'clock and then do some chanting and dedications. Is that reasonable? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because once again, you can stay on practicing, but the point is not overstraining. So I thought, well, maybe we have that sense that for those who want to, at 10 o'clock, we do some closing chanting tonight. So just to see, just stretching the practice a little in terms of the community. Yeah. So we feel ourselves in the stream. So, I think that's it, in terms of the flow of things. Knowing what it feels like to know it's starting to shift. What does our mind start doing? It was interesting noticing myself a couple of days 
ago because I'm in that founder's cottage and I was thinking, hmm, how am I going to clean this whole thing? <laughs> yeah? How am I going to manage this with a kind of winged arm and wanting to be still available? And just slowly starting to gather and do things, yeah? And then I thought, this is going to be impossible. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I ask for some help. Mm. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Which for me is a bit radical, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> and I said to Laura, do you think it would be alright if I asked for a little help? <laughs> and she said, there's actually a whole system Know, where folks sign up to look after bit, different bits of the place. Someone will come in, or there are few people come in, and some clean up that place where we've been meeting, and you know, it has a whole thing. And I thought, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what it's like to be in community, and are we allowing ourselves to feel it? You've been here, many of you, more than me, so you probably think it was a ridiculous thing to imagine. I thought, vacuuming upstairs, vacuuming downstairs, washing the floors, cleaning the surface, the bathroom, getting that interview room all spiffled and shining, amongst it all. So we can be like that, can't we? Yes. So, watch it. So there are a few questions, or quite a number, so I thought, because I don't want to go too much over time, to address one, read the bit of the um, wheel-turning sutta I didn't read last night, and a little bit around it, and maybe come back to some other of the questions. So, and some of these I've stacked up a little because not all of them, but some of them that are a bit older, are about this experience of coming back into manifestation, you know, coming into the world. So, as we mindfully let go of conditionality, how do we know when to take action? Where does right action come from, if not from within conditions? How do I decide when and what outer action to take in the world? Should all action arise spontaneously in the present moment? Yeah? This is the question really, isn't it? <coughs> and my response is, and you'll have your own one, is when I, if we go back to Rosa Parks, what happened? Yeah? If I imagine her, and you will know more about her than me, I come from a different place, but when I imagine her, I have a sense of her, a bit like my grandmother, in the sense of the amount of physical drudgery there can be, yeah? how tiring it can be. And I have a, and I don't know if it's right or not, but a kind of image of someone t 
tired from work with no things probably they're carrying to take home and they sit down on the bus and why do they not get up again? Is it because of ill will? Is it because they're taking on the system? My sense of it is there's a moment where the love happens. Mm. Yeah. You no know, feeling her own tiredness and comes from that place. And it is so radical it sends shockwaves throughout your country. Yeah? So can we come into what it is like you know, to be here sensitive and so willing to be present to it that when we recognise what is happening we come from this place. We've, we've been prepared to feel the ill will, whatever, the wishing to fight, whatever is going on, but we've actually stayed true to the very deepest experiences. And something else happens that's much more powerful. And we know, the Buddha said, hatred does not cease through hatred. It ceases with love. So, you know, my sense of, well, how do we move into the world? What, how do we start taking out action? It's from as deeply as we can meeting the inner so that we can respond you know, our distress, whatever. Yeah. We meet the whistling. No? <laughs> yep. See, and sometimes it's just a case of a bit of analysis. Yeah. <laughs> no, we like this, we take this, the whistling is unpleasant and obviously interferes. Bob gets up to take action. Someone else offers analysis. Is it better? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yes. And, uh, I was thinking about this in terms of what I'm up to. And um, have arrived into a bit of New Zealand, and what, what to, you know, with the sense of offering a place that people can gather for practice. You know, so Eliza, my partner, and I just—it's not a grand vision. It's a very small vision, it may grow, 
but to, to you know, for us, for me, as, you know, it was lovely talking with Kate, who's doing a similar thing in Portland, the sense of what happens, we have to stop. <laughs> Maybe I'll turn it off, eh? Yeah. So, you know, and start from that stopped place. We start listening. Yeah. We know what our intention is, and we're prepared to be with the not knowing. Yeah. Talking. You know, okay. Resting in this experience of not coming into form till. One's attended. Mm. It can be a bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. As you know, you know, the world wants us to take a shape. And in terms of what I'm doing, it's been really helpful listening to folk here and in Portland. Folk for whom access is a problem. Or access for their friends is a problem. Yeah? And I think, well, hmm, if what I'm doing is about making this possibility of coming out of suffering available to the community where I am, how do I make the community welcome? Yeah, so listening. And you know, having had a really wonderful discussion yesterday with someone, I thought, well, the first thing I need to be doing is going to the elders of the Māori community and hearing what they think. Mm. You know? Because of where I am. So that it doesn't become, some people feel welcome, other people don't. Yeah. No, so we come and we start just letting something take shape. Mm. Yeah. Mm. How to make this little place where I'll be somewhere where folk who have been cultivating for a long time and need a place where they can kind of be in dialogue with their practice in a new way, get a bit more community support where they feel welcome. Yeah. And we'll see. But that that sense of what, how do we come into manifestation. And it's interesting what the Buddha says to me, of course. <laughs> In um, Majjhima, there's the most wonderful sutta. I mean, there's, it's all wonderful, but one I thought I might have begun the retreat with 
but actually it didn't happen like that. So it's called the, it's in number 19, but it's about the two kinds of thought. And this is how, I mean, the Buddha talks about his, his process to enlightenment or to Nibbāna in many ways, but one way he often frames it is this way. Before my enlightenment, it occurred to me, and I preceded here, just suppose I was to divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sexual desire, thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will and thoughts of non-cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus, this thought of sensual desire has risen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties and leads away from Nibbāna. When I considered thus, This leads to my own affliction, to the affliction of others, to the affliction of both. It subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it and did away with it. And he goes on to say he did the same thing with thoughts of ill will. He'd recognised that they led to his own affliction, to others' affliction and to the affliction of both and to thoughts of cruelty. So we know what the um, other side of these are, a sense of simplification. And ill will, we get metta. Cruelty, we get karuna, compassion. So, so there's, there are thoughts that are on one side, thoughts that are on the other. Then he goes on to say, whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever someone thinks about, they have abandoned the opposite to cultivate it. So he uses a simile of a cowherd keeping his cows out of the newly thickened crops by tapping and prodding because he sees the danger of them straying, that they get flogged and end up being imprisoned along with him. So so too I saw in unwholesome states the danger, degradation and defilement, and in unwholesome states the blessing and the cleansing. So he, he goes on and talks about this. If I think and ponder on this thought, so a thought of ill will, cruelty, or desire, it leads to the affliction of myself and of others. But if he thought, thinks of thoughts of, of simplicity, ill will, 
and non-cruelty and recognises that when it has arisen, it does not lead to others' affliction or my own. It aids wisdom, does not lead to difficulty, it leads to nirvana. If I think and ponder on this thought even for a day, even for a night and day, I see nothing to fear from it. Then he goes on to what happens next. So, when I, with excessive thinking and pondering, I tire my body. And when the body is tired, the mind becomes strained. And when the mind is strained, it is far from collectedness. So I steadied my mind internally, quieted it, brought it to singleness and collected it. Why is that? So my mind was not strained. So he goes on and talks about this process he went through then, you know, where the mind has been settled from these unwholesome thoughts. It's now collected and with it unified, tranquil, untroubled, he starts to come into states of meditation, absorption, and goes on to contemplate and penetrate the teaching. Yeah. But just that we can live with this inquiry. No. Is this thought for my well-being the well-being of others. When, when the kind of ill will and irritation that can come from rot of sense impact, what do you do with that? Do we have a sense of friendliness for ourselves, compassion for this experience? So, from that space, we have what the Buddha realised. So, last night I read the first bit of the setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion sutta, and then it comes to, there is this noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Ageing is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation Pain, grief and despair are suffering. Associated, association with the disliked is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. So this is what we've been chanting every morning. Yeah. This is a noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is craving which produces renewal of being, is accompanied by relish and lust, relishing this and that, in other words, craving for sensual desires, craving for being, craving for non-being. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the remainderless fading and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go and rejecting of that same craving. This is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It is this noble eightfold path. That is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, 
right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. So, this is the noble truth of suffering. Such was the insight, the knowledge, the understanding, the vision, the light that arose in me about things not heard before. This noble truth must be penetrated to, be, to fully know suffering. Such was the insight, the knowledge, the understanding, the vision, the light that arose in me. The noble truth has been penetrated to by fully knowing suffering. Such was the insight, the knowledge, the understanding, the vision, the light that arose in me about things not heard before. There is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. So it has insight, knowledge, understanding. This noble truth must be penetrated to be abandoning the origin of suffering. This noble truth has been penetrated to by abandoning the origin of suffering. Such was the insight, the knowledge, the understanding, the vision, the light that arose in me. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. This noble truth must be penetrated to by realising the cessation of suffering. And the noble truth has been penetrated to by realising the cessation of suffering. This is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This noble truth must be penetrated to by maintaining and being the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This noble truth has been penetrated to by maintaining and being the way leading to the cessation of suffering. As long as my correct knowledge and vision in these 12 aspects, in these three phases of penetration to each of the Four Noble Truths was not quite purified, I did not claim to have discovered the full enlightenment that is supreme in the world. But as soon as my correct knowledge and vision was quite purified, I claimed to have discovered the full enlightenment that is supreme in the world its deities, its maras and its divinities. This generation with its well, with its practitioners, with its nobles and people. This knowledge and vision arose in me. My heart's deliverance is unassailable. This is the last birth. There is no more renewal of being. Now while this discourse was being delivered Spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in the Venerable Kondanyo thus, all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And when the wheel of the Dharma had been set rolling by the Blessed One, the earth deities cried out, At Benares, in the deer park at Isipatane, the perfect one, accomplished and fully enlightened, has set rolling the matchless wheel of the Dharma, which cannot be stopped by anyone. And hearing the earth deities cry out, the deities of the four heavens cried out. So you get this recitation of it going from a kind of earth deities right up to the highest realms, the kind of cosmology. Yeah. And so 
At that minute, at that moment, at that instance, the news travelled right up to the Brahma world, and this 10,000-fold world element shook and quaked and trembled while a great measureless light surpassing the splendour of the gods appeared in the world. Then the Blessed One exclaimed, Kondanyo knows, Kondanyo knows. And this is how the Venerable One acquired the name Anyata Kondanya. Then Anyata Kondanya, who had seen and reached and found and penetrated the Dharma, whose uncertainties were left behind, whose doubts had vanished, had gained perfect confidence and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. Yeah. So they go on this the you know, the Buddha and the five aesthetics he went to teach, former former colleagues, they go on to practice together. And they at various times each of them penetrates to this understanding. Yeah. So what do you make of different world systems and the whole earth shaking and things mm-hmm. is up to you. But there's a sense that some, this, this penetration, this understanding of suffering caused such an enormous shift in understanding that it was mm-hmm. dazzling. Yeah. And yeah, and here we are I find the sense that we here we are still practicing in that stream, very encouraging. You know, and we're practicing with, you know, how do we come into manifestation? And my sense for myself, it's by really seeing what's occluding the mind. You know, as much as I can, clearing that out, so I'm fully able to respond and of course there are times when we can do it more easily than others when we're being in the traffic for hours or where I was working last year where people are in a critical situation and you want to get there really quickly and the traffic is banked up everywhere. You know, how do we be with the stress where you know, we want to be responding to something and it isn't possible? Mm-hmm. Meeting the realities of our experience. Yeah. It, it's talked about this as warrior knowledge. Mm. You know, not scholars' knowledge. It's for being in the cut and thrust of life. Mm-hmm. So, so in that flow, talk a bit about understanding suffering. How long, how often do you have to stand under it before you learn to let it go? 
Or do you learn both and practice both together? Yes? Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? <laughs> that we, we're cultivating the capacity and the willingness to be available and present. And then we're really realistic. Yeah? We know that, as the Buddha was saying in this, when he actually understood that the thoughts he, were ha- he was having were harmful to him and harmful to other people, it was easier to put them down. Yeah. So sometimes we don't just want to stand under it, you know, feeling this, unless we're actually attuning to the weight. if you know what I mean, so that we're actually feeling what suffering is like. Then then when we feel how heavy it is, there's a natural movement to let go. It's not coming from some kind of doing, it's like the heart goes, the qualities of metta karuna arise. Yeah. I don't know if that's satisfactory, but mm-hmm. and do we pa- practice both together? You know, mm-hmm. Standing un- under something, letting go. Well, in my experience, you know, sometimes we're capable, sometimes we're not. Yeah. Depending on what's been going on. So sometimes it has a kind of rhythm of we, we're just being present with something and there is, we know if we're just present, things release, but sometimes they're so heavy and we don't have enough mindfulness not to get crushed. So then it can be a case of we let them go by attending to something that gives us more capacity. Mm. No, it's silly just to get crushed and swept away into this great ocean Mm. where we know there are ways of getting more capacity. Mm. And some things simply by being skillful by not continually picking up things that are dukkha by their nature. Mm -hmm. They just start to naturally fall away. The channels in the brain dry up. Mm -hmm. That that whole sense the Buddha says where what we pay attention to becomes the habit of mind. So we start as much as we can, attending to things that are for our well-being. Yeah. And a tricky little question. Is it possible to create dukkha in or for others? What do you think? Yes. Yeah, that we are in a field of relationship. 
And it's this, once again, it's a kind of, um, what's the word, paradox that each of us is fully responsible for ourselves. But we are affected by what's happening around us. Which is recognised in this passage that I can do things that aren't for the well-being of you. Now, on one level, whatever, you know, people can do things that aren't for the well-being of me. On one level, whatever they do, I can not suffer. But most of us, there are times where we are thrown around by what's happening around us. So it's a tricky one because we can become paralysed, you know, not willing to manifest in the world in case something we do harms another. And would that be for people's well-being? So I guess for me I take refuge in my primary intention to live my life as a blessing. And then if if there are things I'm doing that are actually creating harm, then feedback helps. Yeah? And you think, well, I need to know, let me do it differently. And it's tricky because whether the feedback's accurate or not, you know, as we know, it's a real exploration. So all we can know for sure is what's happening here. But we're trying to become attuned to something more connected. There's a lot we could say, but... Yeah. We need to manifest. So it can't be that we... From the place of fear we have, that we don't offer ourselves into the community. Would be my sense of it. But each person makes their own assessment of that. How much easier it would be for each of us to sit with the blinds down and the door closed. And, of course, there are times for that, times to come here. And then that sense of folk ringing the bells. Yeah? And a sense of being willing to come into manifestation, to know they will arise in your consciousness.
Yeah. And also with this little bow, you know, there, from my position, what's my responsibility? You know, should I have got it properly sorted out? Yeah. Or, or the way I went with it, where I think, well, I'm not quite sure how we sort it out, and I don't think the confusion is a problem. So it's not that we're trying to fix everything, either. We're trying to discern. And then the feedback has been such where I think, well, next year, when I'm here, we'll do it differently. So it's a sensitive, responsive system. There'll be another confusion. (laughs) Another place where each of you can suffer if you want. (laughs) (laughs) There'll be more of us. It'll be more confusing. (laughs) No? I mean, but, but that's, it's not that we're unresponsive either. No, we're not. The intention is not to harm, not to increase anyone's affliction. So, let's stop so we stay in rhythm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.